Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne will be speaking once again with Kim Stallwood, who knows more about the animal rights movement and its history and its future than pretty much anybody. They will be focusing particularly, though, not exclusively, on the Kim Stallwood Archive at the British Archive, which is preserving some of that history. That's so cool. Yeah, it really is amazing. And Kim has just done, I mean, he's done many, many things for animals. He's been doing this for such a long time. But he's the only person I know of who's, he has kind of an obsession with preserving these these materials that will allow people to look back at where we've been. And, and I just think it's such a valuable contribution. Yeah, he's a tremendous activist, and we've all been really excited about this airing. On this week's Flock Bonus segment, as you mentioned, you'll be continuing your conversation with Kim. Yeah, as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get the link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up. You can always also find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, we are continuing with our Flock Fridays. They are Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern for our Flock members. Sometimes we have guests. Last week, we had Peter Brandt and Becky Jenkins. So we got like a two for one because they are both recent guests and happened to be a couple. In fact, they met through our hen house. So. They met through our hen house and they recently got married. I, I, I feel like it's our first marriage. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so our Flock Fridays are super fun and we hope that you join us if you're in the flock and you can. So before we get to the interview, uh, Mazel Tov is in order times two. I know you're teaching two semesters in animal law this this year. One is at NYU that started this week and one is at Cornell and that starts soon. So how did the NYU one go? How are you feeling? Well, you know, it's always it's always nice to get started. I, I find teaching difficult because I'm not that much of a conversationalist, mm. but I always really love getting to know the students and love knowing there's people out there who care about animals. And we've just, so, like every year, we have so much to talk about, even since the, the last year, uh, so much going on. Right. So I'm looking forward to it. You know, podcasting is a good medium for introverts because you're just talking to me. Nobody's actually listening to this. You know, I, I don't know why I feel comfortable doing this. I still am not a person who, you know, you're the one who always does the fill and, and, and keeps things going. And, and I feel like sometimes I just have nothing to say. I don't know. Like, I am who I am. What can I say? Well, I like who you are. So your house also finally closed. I know Yay! that I know that geez, that was so loud. I know that in the last few weeks we've been talking about how you are moving and you're still kind of in the process in the sense that your your stuff is not really put together yet. <laughs> but but you're you're moved. So Mazel Tov, it feels good to shut one door, open another. Oh my God, moving is just horrible. I feel so sorry for myself. You should all feel sorry for me. But now it's over. I feel better. But I have been so, like so stressed out. And I know other people have much bigger reasons to be stressed out. So I do feel really bad for all of you who are actually have real problems. But <laughs> like I have every stress-related ailment I've ever had. They've all come back at the same time. But yeah, the movers were there. They took apart all of my belongings, put them in a truck, drove them over here. They're now everywhere around me. And I think, why do I have all this crap? <laughs> yeah, it's. I wish that I could become a minimalist, but like not enough to become a minimalist. You know, like I like my I stuff. Like my things, yeah. Um. So, 
like I was on a couple podcasts this week and I want to give a little shout out to them in case you are looking for more to listen to. So after you've gone through all of the episodes of our head house that we've ever produced and the animal law podcast, I was a guest on the healthification podcast by Kate Galley, who I know is an RNS listener. And I, I really enjoyed chatting with her about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. And Kate was a great person to talk to about it because her questions were really about like the sort of harder hitting aspects of the book, as opposed to like a few of the people who have interviewed me had me on to talk about the recipes. And I'm like, I didn't write them. <laughs> I didn't write the recipes. Lucky for you. Each chapter ends with a recipe. That was provided by a Veg News recipe developer and contributor. A lot of these people are very well known. So I feel like uh, when they give me credit for it, no, it wasn't me. You know, that one was Chloe Coscarelli, actually, not me, but the world renowned chef, Chloe Coscarelli. So anyway, that was a really fun podcast to talk to chat with Kate. And then Mike Kaplan has a podcast called Broccoli and Ice Cream. He obviously means vegan ice cream. He is such a great comedian and just all around awesome person. And I've just really been enjoying getting to know him again because we used to know each other, you know, a little bit. When we did the Arhan House TV show, he was the first guest on the Arhan House TV show. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Yeah. But I do love him. He's hilariously funny. He's going to be on Arhan House in the next in the next few months as well. So get ready to laugh and save up your laughs. And also uh, we are going to have another speaking of fabulous vegan, we are going to have another virtual event. We haven't officially announced it yet, but heck, I'll tell you, it is going to be on February 10th in the evening and Mike will be there once again and a whole wonderful, fabulous lineup of other folks, which I will keep you posted. But for now, mark your calendars because February 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific is is when we'll be doing that. Is that Valentine's themed? It is. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Chocolate and Valentine's Day and sexual health and chocolate and aphrodisiacs and love. And chocolate, <laughs> all with a vegan bent. So check it out. I'll keep you posted. We'll 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 be sure to spread it uh, the word about it on our hen house's social media. Okay, so a few weeks ago we asked you, our listeners, what your number one vegan tips are. And this question came from the fact that like uh, every time I'm interviewed about fabulous vegan, the interviewer has been asking me like, "What's your number one tip?" And I frequently find that I don't say the same thing. Like every time I'm asked, I'm like, oh, well, my number one tip today is, you know, and I have a different answer. I don't don't think I get asked. Well, of course, you're being interviewed left and right um, about veganism, but I don't think I'm not sure I've ever been asked that. Well, do you have an answer? Nobody I know wants to go vegan, so they don't want to. Well, they're already <laughs> vegan. That's why they don't want to go vegan, because they're already... Yeah, but, either they are or they have no interest. Yeah. But do you, do you have an answer? No. Uh, number one tip... For going vegan. Just, just, just think, go vegan. think about the animals. Well, okay. So I do, obviously, that is my number one reason I'm vegan, but that isn't... I don't think that that's why most people would. I mean, I think a lot of people yeah, would. Right. People who listen to our hen house, for sure, that's your heartbeat. But I think your average sort of general run-of-the-mill person, they need it to be comfortable and accessible and affordable and like in their life. So I think we need to kind of replace what they are doing right now with the vegan version without them even noticing it. So let's go to the our hen house listeners and those of you who answered our, our question on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at our hen house. Here is a s- small sampling of some of your answers So here we go. Start small, one baby step at a time, which is uh, from on Instagram at plant 
centered prep. Ashley, thank you. I do agree. One baby animal step at a time. I'll take it even further. And it's true. I think that's, I think that's excellent advice, but I do think that some people just really jump in, but I think it's excellent advice because it makes it unintimidating. And then if they want to jump in, you know, and just do it wholeheartedly, they will. But the worst thing that happens to people is they get overwhelmed with thinking that they can't manage it. And I think that once people take that step, mm-hmm. they're likely to continue. Yeah, totally. So we've got veganize your favorite dishes instead of feeling like you have to try all the new ones. That's from Two Trick Pony, Lori. I think that you're hitting on something super important, Lori, which is is that people need to know that they don't have to give up their XYZ. They just have to replace it with the vegan version. So depending upon who this person is in your life, you might be able to support them by, by saying something like, hey, for a week, just send me what you're eating. Just eat it and then send me the list. And by the end of the week, I will know what you ate more or less. And I will find you the vegan version. Like, you know, we could help support people in, in that way. Because let's face it, the first thing everybody says is, well, I can't give up X, Y, Z. She is usually being the X, Y, Z. So we did have a few answers that are specifically uh, animal related. My Here's one from Shani Mori. And this is on Instagram, Shani Mori. My only tip is to remember this is your life and you owe no one an explanation about why or where you get your protein. We are the voice for the animals. And then on a similar vein, Kay Burnett, which is Karen Ann, said, aversion therapy. Every time you want dairy or meat, make yourself think of the suffering of the animals. Uh, Why why exactly are you laughing? I'm laughing because I just, I don't know if I would personally lead with that. Like, but I, I mean, you know, that did help me in my own journey when I, when I was the person who said I couldn't give up cheese or whatever. It wasn't cheese. It was frozen yogurt. And then one day I started thinking of the cows. So that did help me, but I had to, I feel like I had to kind of, you know, get to that myself. But she also says, also think about what it is and where it comes from. Make your, (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just so gross. And it's so gross because it's so gross. Make yourself think of pus and mucus (laughs) every time you want dairy. Works really fast for many, but you have to actively think about it. You know, I think this is really good advice because we have to, this wouldn't be good advice for somebody who has no interest, you know, if you're trying to talk somebody into going vegan. But that's not what we're really asking here. We're really, we're really asking if somebody wants to go vegan, what's a good way to help them? And I think thinking about the animal, I'm going to go back to my to my recommendation. I agree with Karen Ann and Shani. If somebody wants to go vegan, and particularly if the reason they want to go vegan is because of the animals, like just remind them to think about it all the time, even though it's painful, because I do think that's the big motivator. I also loved what Shani said that to remember that you don't, you that you don't owe an explanation yeah. about why about where you get you. You don't owe anybody anything about why you're doing this. Like if you want to talk about it, that's fine. You are not required to. Yeah. This kind of eating really works for me is all you really have to say if people are on the defensive. So uh, let's see. Vegan all year. That's funny. I was like vegan all year. No, it's vegan all year. Sean said plan meals when possible. Sign up for Veganuary for free. Continue to remind yourself of why you're choosing veganism and seek out mentors as needed. Well, I love all of this advice for sure. I have nothing else to add except for yes. <laughs> I don't know if I could say this. It's um, mom underscore grandma. This is my favorite advice. Number one, listen to our hen house. Thank you, mom. I appreciate <laughs> that. It's like the sweetest thing. Thank you for saying that. 
Yeah. And you know, it is funny because that isn't, I'm not sure our hen house is always the right thing for people who are just going vegan because we're sort of like 2.0. But then again, I know a lot of people who just went vegan and found our hen house and it was very helpful to them. So I do appreciate that. I think it would have helped me to learn about the issues immediately. Well, I did. I learned about the issues immediately because I had immediately gone down to PETA to volunteer like within two weeks of going vegan. So I learned I learned about the issues. That's for sure. We've got from Doliver underscore 79, who is Amanda. I watched Vegucated and cut out all meat and dairy from my life immediately. After three weeks, I never felt better physically and spiritually. Vegucated has been such an amazing tool for so many people. Yeah, I know there's been other documentaries that have come out that are, you know, like higher production value, but I still think Vegucated is the best. So the next one is Cynthia Ninth. This is Cynthia. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Don't let others pressure you. Meat eaters or vegans, be proud of yourself. It's a big deal. Also, great advice because, you know, we need community around us and there's also going to be the haters and haters going to hate. Yeah, well, I love that she says that not to let others pressure you, meat eaters or vegans. And I don't think I don't think I've ever been pressured by a, a vegan I, I can't remember that, but meat eaters will do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can't eat that, can you? Oh, are you allowed to eat that? Mm-hmm. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can't say this. It's like Plarnuvius. Jim Harris. Jim says, join vegan groups. Take a vegan B12 supplement. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. I agree. Take your B12. Join vegan groups. Community goes a long way. The reason you need your B12 is that you're not eating animal flesh, which is the bodies of animals who were given B12 supplements. You're taking your B12 supplements directly. So you have to do it. Good, good reminder. All right. Then we've got Tanya, who is Juniper and Sage. And there's some periods and underscores there. So it's Juniper period underscore and period underscore Sage said, make sure you eat enough calories. Plant foods are naturally lower in caloric density, and it's a common complaint I hear when people I've known have tried to go vegan. I'm so hungry. I feel tired, and I have low energy. I feel constipated. You need to eat more volume. You may have to cut your caloric intake in half or more without realizing because of the omission of calorically dense animal foods. So number one tip is to do some number of crunching and make sure you're eating enough calories. I've never had that issue. <laughs> I've not. I have not had that issue either, but I have t- I have heard from people who do. And yeah. I'm I have too, but you know, they're they're probably not eating quite the same foods I am. On Twitter, Byron Murphy 8, so this is Byron said, "Don't worry about the mistakes. It all helps." Excellent advice for almost anything in life. Right. Don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. This is funny. When I was on Mike Kaplan's podcast, he did an extra little interview with me, sort of like our bonus content. And we started talking. So on the full podcast, I was talking about what basically what Byron just said. Don't don't worry about being perfect. Just, you know, be do something vegan, damn it. And so anyway, flash forward to the second interview, which is for his Patreon subscribers. And we were talking about meditating. And I was like, I just can't do it. I'm just so bad at it now. And he totally called me on it. And he totally was like, isn't that exactly what you told people not to think like when they're going vegan? And I was like, well, yes, that is exactly right. (laughs) So, you know, I think he was right. Yeah. I'm not a good meditator either. 
But, you know, his point is like, that's the same thing as someone saying they're not good at being vegan, whereas you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So I see you stopping to like take a deep breath. You see, I, but I'm saying I'm not good, a good meditator because I'm trying to be like just nice about it. I actually hate meditating. That's my real <laughs> truth. I don't know whether I'm any good at it or not, but it's just so boring. There's been I've I've really enjoyed some apps that have come about. Like, you know, we use the Calm app and the bedtime story. Oh, the Calm app right. for going to sleep. There is a meditation on the Calm app for like middle of the night. And the woman who comes on is like, okay, so you're up. That's okay. There's so many other people up. We're going to get through this together. Yeah, it's fine. Not meditating. Then, I mean, it's nice. Except that I hate the voice of that woman on that app. It's like so annoying. (laughs) All right. Our final tip. A lot of the recordings for the sleep app are not by her. So that's why I like them. But there is, I just got. This is turning out to be an an ad for the comment. Well, I did just get an ad for something called like Syncuation or something. It was another app. And I'm thinking about doing the free seven day trial of it because they use ASMR and I love ASMR. And uh, I think I mentioned that recently, actually. But yeah, I definitely mentioned that. But this uses ASMR as the technology to help you to find a deeper layer of meditation. Okay, so back to going vegan. Our final comment is from Christina on Facebook. Don't expect to do it all at once. Swap out one thing at a time. If you accidentally or forgetfully eat something non-vegan, it's okay. Just keep going. Musicians don't give up and walk off stage when they play a wrong note. They just keep playing the song. Oh, Christina. Again, excellent advice for life. And also, Christina, can you come just like validate everything in my life? Because that was such a validating, kind, like unpretentious way of putting all of it. And I just loved it. Like it's it's also gentle, you know, and I think that gentleness is important for how we treat ourselves and each other right now, especially around like making big life shifts like going vegan, you know. And uh, so the people in our lives who might be going vegan right now, they need us to be gentle and supportive and kind and funny and and to model good behavior when it comes to, you know, our inclusiveness and the way we go about our veganism. I think another another thing that I would do, this is because I, I read this story recently about what's going on in China, is just to remember that this is catching up to us. It's going to get easier and easier and easier. And don't wouldn't you rather be ahead of the curve than behind the curve? The story I'm talking about, like, just kind of blew my mind. It was in time. And it was called How China Could Change the World by Taking Meat Off the Menu. Right. And actually features uh, somebody who was on the podcast one, David Jung. Mm-hmm. But it's a long article. And the point it made that I thought was really, I mean, it makes a lot of points, but but the one that really stuck with me is that China could really do this because when the Chinese government gets behind something, they seem to be really interested in this because, you know, they eat, they're eating more and more meat in China and it's causing more and more problems. And if the government gets behind it, they will subsidize it like insanity and people will get rich and they could just make that decision. Right. Uh, and it's so exciting. Yeah. So my, what I think is one of the best ways this is maybe more to talk people into being vegan than for people who are already on the on the road and just need practical advice. But like, just remind people that this is the future, and do they want to be behind the times or do they want to be, you know, in front of them? Yeah. So I I loved that article that it came out this week too. So now to the interview, because Kim Stallwood is an icon. And he is an animal rights scholar, consultant, and speaker. And he's the author of Growl, 
life lessons, hard truths, and bold strategies from an animal advocate. He has 45 years of personal commitment as a vegan and professional experience in leadership positions with some of the world's foremost animal advocacy organizations. Among other things, he will be telling us about the Kim Stallwood Archive, which is held by the British Library and is scheduled to be made available in 2021, which is the year we are currently in. Yay. He became a vegetarian in 1974 after working in a chicken slaughterhouse, and he became a vegan in 1976. He has really seen it all. And Kim will be joining Marianne right after this. Hi, I'm Brenda Sanders, Executive Director of Afro Vegan Society, a national nonprofit organization with a mission to make vegan living accessible to everyone. Please join us for our February 28-day online vegan pledge program, taking place throughout the month of February, featuring talks by esteemed speakers, discussions with expert panelists, cooking demos by talented chefs, live Q&As with Black vegan trailblazers, tons of amazing giveaways, and more. Veguary is a Black History Month celebration you don't want to miss. For more information about Afro Vegan Society, and to pledge or sponsor Veguary, go to www.afroveganSociety.org. Welcome back to our hen house, Kim. It's been a while. Yes, it has. And uh, I'm very uh, appreciative of the fact that you've invited me back. Well, I'm very appreciative of the fact that you agreed to come. <laughs> and there's, there are a few things that are going on in your life right now that are very worth talking about. But I wanted to start with a little bit of background because they do both relate to history. And you have become somewhat of an iconic figure in preserving the history of this movement. And you have been involved in the fight for animal rights for a long time. You're both old and, and you started young. So, so there you go. It's been a while. And I, I only say you're old because you're probably not as old as I am, but, uh, you know. Are you, are you starting with the compliments or the insults? <laughs> so, but you really were there at the beginning, well, at the beginning or close to the beginning of the modern animal rights movement. So what we're going to be talking about today is is how you've preserved some of that history and what's happening to that. And when did you start this project of preserving documents and the history of the movement? What made you do that? There was never a conscious decision made by myself to do this. I became a vegetarian in 1974 and a vegan in 1976. And joined organizations and started to participate in events. And compulsively, I just collected things and collected newsletters and magazines from organizations and made notes and kept notes. And from there, it really just grew into this animal rights collection, which I now have in my office here in England and was part of it was recently acquired by the British Library. I guess this probably speaks to me as someone who's, I'm not, I don't think I consider myself a hoarder, but I think that since I've been working full-time professionally in animal rights since 1976, it's always made sense for, to me to keep materials and keep them in an orderly way to be, to be used, and I do use them. And then I just love books, and what better thing to do than to collect books about animal rights, books about animals in one way or another, and our treatment of animals. So that's how it all grew. And then periodically, I would acquire collections from various people, and they all got absorbed 
into my mega collection, if you like. And that's how it all started, really. Yeah, I, I think we're very, very lucky that you that you have this. Well, you're almost describing it as a quirk that it, it wasn't so goal oriented, just as you like to collect things. And I do want to, if anybody is picturing your uh, home as this, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> hoarder's mansion, I do want to assure people I have seen. And it's been a while, but I have seen the way you collect these things, and it is in a completely pristine and organized and and careful fashion. So. I'm not sure anybody else would have realized at that time that it was important to save these things, but you did. And and I, I do want to talk about the acquisition of part of your collection by the British Library, which is a kind of the starting point for why we decided to do this conversation. But just give us an idea of, of the collection as a whole. What kind of materials are these? The collection as a whole includes a diversity of materials. So I'm sitting in my office here now and I'm looking around it and looking at what is in front of me. So what's in front of me are bookcases with about 2,000 plus books to do with animals in one way or another. There's also probably another couple of hundred books that aren't directly to do with animals, but to do with other issues. And then also I have got a very large collection of photographs, negatives, reel-to-reel footage, uh, transparencies of various activities to do with animal rights. I do own the original reel-to-reel footage shot in 1990 on the march on Washington, D.C. That's all here. That material was actually retrieved from a dumpster and sent to me kindly by someone. Wow. Uh, And I'm very lucky, very pleased that I was able to get that. And it was was a very lucky uh, move that happened to make that possible. I've also got some artwork. I've got some artifacts. And I've got a badge of animal rights buttons or badges. I also acquired a collection of some 200 plus pamphlets, single sheet pieces that were published in the 1800s and early 1900s. These are very rare items um, because generally speaking, they were produced not to survive more than a year or two of being used. And they are all wrapped up in acid-free tissue paper to preserve them. And what else do I have here? There were, are various working files that I work with on the projects that I'm currently working on. That's all part of the collection as well. And that's, a, that's a quite a, a range of, of the materials that I have here. Yeah, it's an extraordinary range. And, and, you know, the story you told of the reel-to-reel footage, I, I just feel like there's probably a lot of stuff in there that if you hadn't existed, people who found it wouldn't have known what to do with it and might have just, you know, they would be like me and save things and then they would disappear and not be organized. And Well, one of the worst things about doing this work is that I've heard horror stories of priceless collections just being thrown away. Yeah. And not only by individuals, but by organizations as well. And so I've tried over the years to beat the drum to say, we have to preserve the movement's history. If we don't preserve the movement's history, no one else. If we don't write the movement's history ourselves, others will write the history for us and they won't write it in the way in which we want it to be recorded. So it's very important to preserve the history of the movement. And and the movement goes back more than just from the contemporary movement that started in the 60s and 70s. It goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. So why is it important? Why is it important not to scholars or or 
or people in the movement. But why is it important to animals? It's important to animals because people like ourselves who campaign on their behalf, I'll, I'll speak for myself here and say that I know that when I first got involved, I very much had the attitude that the, the animal rights movement started because I, I, I found it and I began, <laughs> began to get involved in it, which of course is utter rubbish and nonsense. And then eventually I began to learn that there was a movement that preceded me. And, and that movement had a lot, we had a lot to learn from that movement. So to answer your question more directly, I think it's important that we know our history because how else can we understand where we are now and where do we want to go in the future? How do we avoid the mistakes of the past? What can we learn from the past? And there are so many similarities between the movements in the 1800s as there is with the movements of today. And that's, that's important things for us to have, to know. And I hear activists say, they make reference to the fact that, oh, you know, a long time ago in, in the early 2000s when I became vegetarian or vegan. And I think well, that's really not that long ago. You know, you really do not know what preceded uh, your first involvement with it in the early 2000s, if that was the case. We really should know what happened before us. I mean, there was, for example, in the 18, late 1800s, a vigorous anti-vivisection movement. And in Britain, there were two organizations led by two very strong-willed women. One was Frances Power Cobb, who led the British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection. And the other was Anna Kingsford, who led the National Anti-Vivisection Society. Now, Frances Power Cobb was a complete abolitionist. She refused to accept any compromise in legislation to do with animal research. She wanted it all abolished all at once. She was a great feminist campaigner, but she ate meat. Whereas Anna Kingsford, who led the National Anti-Vivisection Society, was a vegetarian, and she accepted a compromise in, in campaigning against animal research. And, you know, that those situation is repeated throughout time. And, and it's certainly the same arguments, the same issues are being discussed today. And I think that when we discuss them today with the knowledge that we are repeating what preceded us, then I think we can take a better take on, on understanding what to do about it. I absolutely agree. I've seen so much. I mean, obviously, we've all seen so much conflict between quote-unquote abolitionists and quote-unquote supporters of gradual change. And it does feel after a while, you just hear the same arguments over and over. And knowing that, it can maybe help you take you know, a new, more useful approach to, to resolving some of those conflicts. So that seems like a very useful thing about, about knowing our history so that we can try to avoid repeating the, the worst parts of it. What are some of your favorite, uh, you mentioned the reel-to-reel footage of the uh, march on Washington in 1990, which is an extraordinary thing. But are there other just, just pieces that you just love? There's one piece I, I will tell you about. Uh, there are many others, but one piece that I'm very proud to have acquired because it's probably truly unique. It's probably the only example of it in existence. And I acquired files and artifacts from a veterinarian, a British male veterinarian, who in the 1950s helped establish what we now know as World Animal Protection, which used to be known as World Society for the Protection of Animals and variations on, on those types of names. And he was one of the founders of this organization. 
And as a veterinarian, he traveled around the world meeting organizations in countries that were doing hands-on animal work for street animals. And what I've got is a, a wooden model that fits the size of a shoebox. And this wooden model is of a cage with drop-down sides and a top that you can fold open. And then it has, you know, like in a sedan chair, there are pieces of wood that come out where men would pick it up and they transport people mm -hmm. around. This was like a stretcher with a cage on top. And this model, I'm sure he took it with him on his tr global travels to show people how they could build themselves their own stretcher cages so that when they were traveling around in their cities or localities and they came across a sick or injured dog, for example, that they could pick that dog up and put the dog safely into this stretcher and then take it back to wherever they were treating the dog. And it's a lovely little wooden model. It's got the logos of the organization as it was then known in the early 50s, painted on the side. And I guess it's out and I show it to people and I just go, this is just such a wonderful object because this is a compassion in action. This is the way this veterinarian at this time was helping people to understand how they in turn could help animals. So that is a, pri that is a priceless object. And I, I'll talk about another one briefly. I have a box of about 500 uh, buttons or badges. And some of them are quite old from early 1900s. Many of them are from the 1970s, 1980s and thereafter. And they are a, a unique way of showing the history of the movement and all the issues which the movement uh, focuses upon. And some of the buttons are, reflect topics uh, or issues that we've actually can check off the list and say, well, that one's been dealt with, uh, which is rather nice. Not a lot of those, but there's, there are some. It does. I mean, these things are so moving and it's so heartening to think how there have always been people who cared so deeply about animals and really got it. But at the same time, it's kind of disheartening to think that in so many ways, we have accomplished a lot, but we have accomplished so little. So does looking through these old pieces help you understand how we can take this movement and, and take this compassion that people have al apparently always felt, some people, and turn it into the actual change that we, that we want to see? Does anything from looking at the past give you hope for the future? I, I know that when I go into uh, museums and art galleries and I look at objects and, and things from the past, it, it can be simultaneously inspiring and depressing. That it can be, you know, going through the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. is obviously a very depressing experience, but it can be uh, uplifting in that it's a, it, it speaks to the triumph of the human spirit in over, overcoming oppression. I think you're kind of asking me the big question about, you know, how do I feel about how things are going and are we making any progress? And the way that I answer that question, if I, if I am reading your question correctly, Marianne, please correct me if I'm not. Well, that's a perfectly good place to go from my, little, my somewhat confusing question. <laughs> so I answer the question of how do I think things are going? And I say, it depends on the day of the week. It depends 
upon how I feel. It depends upon what I've last just seen. Sometimes I can feel, well, you know, we are really making progress. And uh, I can go around a supermarket here in Britain and find that there's increasing amounts of, of vegan products for sale and the availability of cruelty-free products is, has never been as great as it has been in the last uh, 30 years as it is now. So there is progress to record. There is pieces of legislation that have been passed. But overall, I, I don't feel optimistic. I, I feel quite depressed about the whole issue of how we treat animals. And a project that I'm working on at the moment, which we can talk about later, is writing the biography of an elephant called Topsy. And so I'm spending a lot of my time researching issues to do with elephants. And one of the things that is very depressing is that almost on a daily basis, I read press reports about elephants being killed and whether they're being killed because they've been hit by a train or they've been electrocuted or they have fallen in, into pits built for them to fall into. And that makes me very depressed because I think there's just so few of these animals left and, and each one is absolutely priceless and needs to be protected. But it's more than just elephants. It's, there's the numbers of animals, including fish, that are being used, who are being used by us humans, is just so mind-staggering that it's beyond our comprehension and doesn't really ever seem to be going down. And so I try to keep myself optimistic, but I would say probably there's a very large undercurrent of pessimism and uh, that, that is uh, uh, hanging over me. Yeah, I would say the same. And I don't think those kinds of things improve as you get older. You see, you see things more darkly. The only thing that I would add, and this is just something I tell myself, is that there is such, I really believe there is such enormous cognitive dissonance about people. It's inexplicable. People who deeply care about animals do horrible things to animals or participate in horror all the time. So, and, and given the possibility of foods that will satisfy people and do not come from animals, I think it, there is actually a possibility that there will be a, a huge shift in consciousness. Do I really believe that? I don't know, but it keeps me going. <laughs> that like, it won't be so much of a wind down. It will be an awakening. I don't know. I do think that one of the things that's so important, if that's to happen or if anything else is positive, is going to happen. And one thing that particularly in the States we've seen play out in the, in the political realm this past year, past few years, is the absolute importance of leadership, that leaders matter. People are easily influenced. Many, many people are easily influenced. They're not so much thinking for themselves. They're looking to others to understand how to fix. So I'm just curious to know who you think have been the, who are your heroes in this movement? Who are the people who, who really have shown that kind of leadership? And do you, do you have hopes for it in the future? You'd like to put me on the spot, don't you? Uh, I'm tempted to say that I really don't like talking about heroes who are people who are alive. And that's because uh, I have in the past set people to be heroes in my heart and mind who are alive and who I've worked with and you discover they are 
far from being heroes. <laughs> yeah, that does happen, doesn't it? So yeah, I, I think that's a fair response. So maybe the word heroes is wrong, or maybe you can look to the past for people whose history is more uh, settled by the fact that they're no longer with us. And there are people who have inspired me, and there are people who are alive and dead who, who do continue to inspire me. And among them would be people like uh, Henry Salt, who was an Englishman who died in 19, early 1930s, who was an ethical socialist and was a vegetarian and campaigned for animal rights. And, you know, the Francis Powell Cobb and Anna Kingsford are also inspirational figures. There have been animals who, uh, who also, uh, who I find inspirational. I find Topsy, despite the tragic circumstances of her life, I find her to be a, a very strongly motivational, inspirational figure. Among people alive today, well, you know, there are many people who have inspired me and many organizations who inspire me. And I'll, I'll just give you one example. And I'm not, I, this won't be naming anyone, but one of the great things that we live with is the internet. And I just find awe-inspiring short videos produced by very small, modest organizations in countries like India, where young men on motorbikes go out and, and rescue seriously harmed and injured uh, street dogs, for example. And there is something I found profoundly moving about how people with very limited resources in comparison to the riches that we have, who do the most extraordinary things in rescuing dogs, who, if their injuries were in this country, would be considered to be so severe that they would be euthanized. But they don't euthanize these dogs and they rescue these dogs uh, and they nurse them back to health and they do remarkable miracles with these animals. And I find that, watching those videos, tremendously inspiring. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. And, and it is unfortunate, I think, sometimes that some of the most heroic work in this movement goes unnoticed So, and, and does not end up being uh, the work of the leaders. It, it, there's just so many people in the world who find that compassion and express it in very, very difficult ways. So do you have any books, in, in since you have this huge collection and you're very aware of the literature, if somebody is intrigued by this conversation but wants to know more to delve into the history of the animal rights movement, uh, are there particular books you would recommend? Well, I would modestly suggest my own book, which is called Growl, because that is a book in which I look back over my involvement with animal rights and how I got to be a vegetarian and a vegan. And I discuss um, some movement history in it and discuss some tactics. And I conclude there are four key values in animal rights, which are truth, compassion, nonviolence, and justice. Oh, gosh, Marianne, I wasn't thinking that you would ask me this question. Can I think about that? I mean, think, there, think there are... about it. If something occurs to you, just interrupt the conversation and, and add it in. Yes, I meant to, I, I had it in my list of things to talk about, Growl, which I highly recommend to people. I just should have put it within this question. All right, so let's get to the to the recent extraordinary, really, event, I think, and justifying your years of hoarding <laughs> and the the acquisition by the British Library of, of some of your collection. Can, tell you, 
Can you tell us how that came about, what they took from you, and perhaps why they focused on the particular materials that they chose to incorporate? And, you know, first of all, tell us what the British Library is, because it's a big deal. Yes. The British Library, I guess this the easiest way to, to, to explain what it is, is that it's the equivalent to the U.S. Congress Library or Library of Congress. Um, the British Library is the Library of Great Britain or United Kingdom. And a centuries-old institution, it has very large premises in central London and, and many other premises around the country where it stores materials. So when something is saved or preserved or collected by the British Library, it's often spoken about that it's, it's saved for the nation. And an academic introduced me to some contacts that they had at the British Library. And I asked to meet with them to explain to them who I was and that I had this collection. I produced a small book that introduced myself and explained with photographs what was in my collection. I only printed 20 copies of this book and gave them, uh, I had a, a one-shot face-to-face meeting with them in January of last year and used the book as the way to help them understand who I was and, and, and what I was offering to them. And I originally set out with the objective that they would acquire everything that I had in my collection. But in the course of the months and, and almost two years of, of, of discussions and negotiations, uh, in which I learned a lot, and I think they also learned a lot about me and the issue, they eventually decided and, and said that they wanted to focus upon what they called research material. And the research material was more than 800 files that I had built up over the years. And the files were in three uh, general categories. They were files to do with organizations and their publications, files to do with individuals, uh, which could be people who are deceased, but I had various publications from them in the files, or people who are alive, and it could be correspondence that I was having with them from the late 1970s, early 1980s. And then there were subject files, which were covering a wide diversity of issues, and they had press clippings and reports and uh, other documentation in them. And they took those files. They also took two old laptops of mine, because there's also something that I learned that's called found digital material. Or no, sorry, born digital. I always get this wrong. It's born digital. So as important as it is to preserve paper files, we nowadays in our digital age need to preserve digital files. And so they took two old laptops and they would download the contents of the laptops. And and I won't go into the detail of how they do all this, um, no, but please they, don't. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a, an amazing technological feat. Uh, but what they were able to do is, is preserve digital files that I had created on those two laptops. And they also took about 20 address books and appointment diaries, which documented my activities. Uh, they weren't journals, but they documented my activities from the late 1970s to the early 1990s. So it's about 36 uh, Anchors boxes of, of materials. They are now owned by the British Library and they're being uh, catalogued and preserved. And by the end of next year, 2021, they should be available for researchers to use and access. I, I, there is sensitive material amongst all of this. And the sensitive material 
has been flagged to be embargoed for 25 years. Um, so that material won't be available uh, until 25 years from now. Well, that's intriguing. So what is that material? <laughs> yes, I guess you're not going to answer that. <laughs> well, you can uh, find out in 25 years' time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe not. Let's hope so. So they expect scholars to be using this primarily to track the history of this movement. Is that right? Yes. And that's fascinating. I'm already beginning to get correspondence from people asking me what's in the collection because they're doing you know, a particular area of research. And uh, so that's very encouraging. That is, uh, it's extraordinarily encouraging. The fact that the library itself considers this an important topic of research, that people will need these materials, to, and the fact that there are researchers out there who want to do this and who probably would not be able to. It would be impossible if you had not saved all of these materials. Fair, I, I find it fascinating. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have seen some of these materials, as I mentioned, and seen how carefully you keep them when I was on the board of the Animals Agenda, which, of course, was a a wonderful pre, basically pre-internet uh, way of keeping track of the animal rights movement. And we used to meet in your library down in Baltimore, which is where you were living then. And I just being amongst all those things was really lovely. I've always loved libraries. When was that? Like, was that the mid nineties? Uh, yes. Yes, it was. Right. But uh, that's a long introduction to my wanting to uh, ask you to tell people a bit about the animals agenda. Well, The Animals Agenda was a magazine that was originally founded by Jim Mason in the late 1970s. I love Jim Mason. If people don't know who Jim Mason is, go out and buy An Unnatural Order. In fact, in now held by the British Library is correspondence that Jim Mason and I were having in the late 1970s, early 1980s, where we were writing to each other uh, about our views about the animal welfare movement as it was then more known as, and the organizations at that time, and then laying out ideas as to what we envisaged, what the animal rights movement should be doing from then on and into the future. So The Animal's Agenda was a, was a magazine that I ended up editing as, and publishing um, when it was based in Baltimore. And it had, as many magazines do, a very challenged history financially and, and organizationally. But w when it was under my stewardship, I tried to make sure that we covered a wide diversity of animal issues, that we weren't just a vehicle for animal groups to talk about themselves. And I also separately, to my own private collection, I also acquired a big collection of material, which is what you're referring to, um, in the offices in Baltimore. And that material, which was very large body of work, ended up at the Tom Reagan Animal Rights Archive at North Carolina State University, where he used to teach. That is still the biggest collection of animal rights and related materials anywhere. But uh, I'm hoping that with the British Library, that they will also begin to acquire more material. Then I also want to tease you with the news that I'm in, because the British Library didn't take everything I have, there's still much of the material left here. I'm now in negotiations with a second institution who is very interested in acquiring the remaining of the materials here. And I'm hoping that I will be able to work with them in the future, whereby they will be able to, to take this material from me and work with them to help, help them further build uh, their library as well. That's very exciting that all of this stuff is going to be preserved. And, and I hope that 
we will have a world in which this scholarship can continue and can be useful. I mean, of course, the world is in a perilous state right now, but... Uh, well, can I mention, Marianne, that in addition to, you know, my one foot being involved with the animal rights movement all these years, since the days of the animal's agenda, um, you know, I put my other foot into the world of animal studies and human-animal studies in the humanities and social sciences and even animal law uh, with long-standing relationships and others. So this, th- there is what, what I see emerging and what does actually give me optimism and, and hope for the future is that there is the emerging universes of animal law, animal studies in the humanities, social sciences, humanities, the emergence of the science of animal welfare, in addition to the philosophy and ethics that has looked at our relationship with animals. And there is increasingly academics and scholars and students who want to seriously assess our relationship with animals and their relationship with us if through various academic fields. So the importance of the collections and building up li- university libraries and so on, it speaks to the need of them having this material with which to use as part of their research. I That is a absolutely perfect reason for the preservation of these materials. And I wonder if you agree with me. I feel like 10 years ago, scholarship vis-a-vis animals was kind of like, oh, how interesting animals are. And, you know, like, oh, the, the history of painting animals on China in 18th century Britain or some, you know, some like just just nonsense almost. And it has completely, well, probably not completely, that stuff is probably still going on, but uh, just dramatically changed to, which I agree is a very hopeful sign to people being seriously interested in, in who animals are, in what we're doing to them and how to change it. And these materials could be extraordinarily useful to such people. Absolutely. But yes, they will be. And and I and I know they already are. Well, I I'm incredibly grateful to you for hoarding for all these years. Uh, I don't think there's anybody else in the world who is who is keeping this stuff. So it's incredibly valuable. Also, I know you're you're doing many other things. Your book Growl is is very useful, and you mentioned the book that you're working on. Did you want to say anything more about it? Yes, so I, I, I've got two major projects on the go. One is. Um, my animal rights archive. But the second project is uh, writing a book about a biography of an elephant called Topsy. And this has been a long-standing project uh, that um, has lived on the back burner for quite a while, but it's now coming more to the forefront of my time and attention. Topsy was an Asian elephant captured in, in 1875 and captured in Southeast Asia. And she was as a baby, transported through Germany and ended up in New York and then ended up in in Philadelphia in 1876. And she ended up with a circus called the Four Paw Circus, not F-O-U-R-P-A-W-S, but F-O-R-E-P-A-U-G-H. That was the name of the man who ran the circus, the Four Paw Circus. And she was trained uh, and grew up performing in this circus and as with many elephants uh, then as now, she was a, a wild animal trapped in a situation of not of her making. She had been adopted and she'd been abused in order to perform silly tricks in the circus ring. And as a, uh, as a consequence, 
the wildness in her came out and she would periodically attack and kill people, as many elephants did then and do still. Uh, many of these attacks were, were people provoked, men mostly provoked her to, whereby she, I think she defended herself. And she eventually ended up on uh, Coney Island in, on Long Island, New York, where she helped build an amusement park. And she again got into trouble where she had attacked some people and her owners decided that they no longer wanted her and they wanted her dead because they didn't know what else to do with her. So she was electrocuted to death and the electrocution was filmed. Um, she was electrocuted in 1903 and it's available for people to watch on YouTube. And when I first learned about uh, the and, what, and saw the film, which was in the 1990s, there was something that just grabbed me about it. And I thought, this is just so wrong. Something has to be done in order to make sure we never forget Topsy. And this is how I've ended up committed to writing her biography. And in the, as part of writing this book, I want to answer the question, what would happen to Topsy if she were alive today? Um, would she go into an, an elephant sanctuary? Would she be sold on? Uh, would she be transported to Mexico or, or South America? Uh, obviously, we'll never know. But I think that by asking that question, I can make an assessment as to how much better off, in whatever way they may or may not be, are elephants today uh, from her situation in the late 1800s. Yeah, that's a really important question, because I do think of all the things that people deceive themselves about vis-a-vis -vis animals, one of the most obvious is that they think it used to be much worse than it is now. And, you know, there are, we have made some progress in ways, but there are many arguments for, as you said before, thinking that we have, hey, we have not made progress at all, and don't deceive yourself about that. It's a tragic story, and truly, truly a sad story, but I'm, I'm really happy that you're working on preserving it and that, that we don't forget her. Thank you. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for telling us about all of this. It's, you know, you don't think of this as exciting work, but it really is exciting work. And, and the fact that the British Library wants these materials is huge. It's huge. It's a recognition of the importance of this movement. And if people start thinking, the movement is important. Maybe they'll start thinking animals are important too. So thanks for all you do, Kim. Your life has been devoted to this and, and we're all extremely appreciative of that. Thank you very much, Marianne. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. All right, we're talking about the EU first thing today. And as you know, the EU frequently panics about the idea that vegan products could replace their beloved animal exploitation products. This is from The Conversation. 
Vegan, quote, unquote, dairy products face EU ban from using milk cartons and yogurt pots. And UK could be next. Yep. Unbelievable, right? So the, there was a ruling by the European Court of Justice in 2017, as you probably know, that has already banned vegan food producers in the EU from using terms such as oat milk and soya yogurt on packaging. So now they're going even, apparently the dairy industry has not recovered enough, if at all, because nobody wants to buy it. Uh, but so they're putting in some new rules or they're thinking about it. Amendment 171. And if it is approved, it's partway through the approval process at this point. Producers will not be able to use terms or imagery on packaging which refer to or evoke dairy products. Now, we're not exactly sure how this would play out, even if it did pass. But if there was a broad interpretation, according to this article, it could prevent vegan products from from including claims or denominations such as dairy, creamy, yogurt style dessert, or I don't even get this one, does not contain milk. Like, why can't they say that? Don't they want that to be the point? Anyway, this is the one that's really crazy. They'd also be unable to use packaging designs that call to mind dairy products such as yogurt pots or milk cartons. Like what? And even simply showing climate impact by comparing the carbon footprint of their product with dairy equivalents could become illegal. As I mentioned, this would be a broad interpretation of this regulation. But still, this is this is an ongoing uh, battle. The amendment achieved a majority vote in the European Parliament in October, but it now needs approval from the EU Council of Ministers. EU government is so complicated, I'll tell you. So uh, we'll see what happens. There's a lot of companies that are very angry about this. Oatly, I think, is one of the ones that is really leading the charge. And one of the arguments here, because back in October, the European Parliament actually rejected a proposal that would have banned terms such as veggie burger and vegan steak. So these dairy producers say that milk and dairy have been essentially linked to the quote-unquote rich liquid fluid produced from glands of mammals, unlike meat, which doesn't need to have anything to do with animals. Well, that's completely ridiculous. Uh, What about nut milk? Um, What about the milk of human kindness? Uh, Unbelievable. Apparently, you're not allowed to have that anymore either. All right. Our next uh, column is from the Meeting Place column. This is Free Range Thoughts by, by... the utterly loathsome Rick Berman, who is, of course, the executive director of the Center for Consumer Freedom. And he he goes on complaining about PETA for a while. But what he really wants to emphasize here is that PETA is on its way. Well, not out, but not getting as as dramatic, not performing such dramatic behavior. And it's DXE now, which is his really big problem. And he goes through a, you know, a bunch of stunts. And I admit some of DXE's stunts are pretty out there. But here, quote, the most troubling part is the group's willingness to break the law. The phrase direct action has a specific meaning. According to the FBI, direct action is criminal activity designed to cause economic loss or destroy property or operations. Well, that's not my understanding of what direct action means. My understanding is that it, you know, it goes beyond protest and sometimes it's legal, sometimes it's not. But, you know, what do I know? He thinks that the the fact that DXE people haven't been prosecuted is, because of course, the Department of Justice is always on the side of radical animal rights activists. No, but getting back to Rick's uh, Rick's points, and he doesn't think this is going to change. Recent events have shown there is a federal double standard with illegal protesting. Get this one. The boneheads who invaded the U.S. Capitol building this month were quickly tracked down and charged with crimes, and rightly so. And, you know, boneheads... 
Isn't there something a little bit uh, lighthearted about that term? But rioters who spent last summer destroying businesses, I don't know, what is he talking about? Their cause was, quote, politically correct, and so they haven't faced the same level of enforcement or negative media. What are you talking about? You're saying that that anything DXC has done, uh, like, I don't know, one thing, they dumped some manure on the Smithfield president's lawn or something like, you're saying that was the equivalent of the invasion of the cat? Yeah, that's pretty much what he's saying. He does admit that DXA has, DXC has faced some state level charges, but there hasn't been a conviction to date. Of course, there are still pending charges and serious ones. He, he doesn't, uh, he leaves that out. But the state and local level are still our best hope for fighting back, he says. Generally, the states where offenses against farmers are committed have ag-friendly legislatures. These actions are happening in your communities where you have roots. He's actually admitting that the legislatures are all on the side of agriculture, uh, you know, which they are. So I guess that's honest. Oh, and, you know, he does also doesn't point out that it's DXE's position that they have defenses to the what would otherwise be crimes, which, you know, if you want to catch Wayne Shung's interview on the Animal Law podcast, you can you can hear more about their legal theories, but they certainly don't acknowledge or admit that they've committed crimes. They believe that they and are taking the position that they have committed defensible actions. All right. Also from Meeting Place, the For the Birds column by Christine Alvarado. She is concerned about biotechnology and she really wants to genetically engineer chickens. That's basically what she wants to do. And the reason she wants to do this is a reason that the industry really does have a lot of anxiety about because they are worried about disease, because these animals catch diseases. And there are a lot of food safety issues involved in that. And this year has made them even more panicky about it. So their answer, not to go vegan, is to bioengineer the livestock. Quote, chickens and turkeys are not considered livestock according to our regulatory definitions. She seems to think that's a problem, though. You know, if they were considered livestock, they'd be covered by the Humane Slaughter Act. So Actually, that wouldn't be such a bad thing, but I digress. So she thinks that with the progress being made on this issue, innovation and research will be expanded beyond pigs and we can explore some opportunities in poultry. Uh, By opportunity, she means bioengineering the animals. This is my favorite line. I know most people are thinking chicken wings and how awesome it would be to produce a chicken with four wings. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But that's not the point of this research and innovation. The focus is animal health and welfare, disease resistance, further reducing agriculture's environmental footprint, and ensuring our food supply in times of crisis. Do you think she's right? Maybe she is. Most people just love the idea of a chicken with four wings. Hey, this is a sick world we live in, folks. I don't know. (laughs) Sorry. This is supposed to be the amusing part. Well, the sort of hideously, in a horrible way, amusing part of the podcast. She's excited about this pathway forward. And she's hoping we can talk about this technology and poultry soon. Consumers may think it would be nice to have four-winged chickens, but we really could use some help with disease resistance, such as avian influenza and others. Well, you know, I have a suggestion about how to get rid of avian influenza. Stop eating chickens. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. 
If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.